Hello, everybody, and welcome to We Speak Dispatch. I'm Joe. Yep, that's Joe. Joe McCarville, that is. Really awesome, interesting, caring guy who has worked in 911 dispatch and as a supervisor as well for almost 20 years. Our discussion related to being in that profession was riveting. But before we jump into that, let's hear a bit more about Joe and what it's like being a 911 dispatcher and trying to deal with closure related to that job. Also hear a lot of dispatchers say, you know, the thing that we struggle with is we don't get closure. We don't get the final result of phone calls. Right. It's huge. And in those instances, if you're meeting with the responders to the scene and you're meeting with the fire departments, you're meeting with the medical people, or you're meeting with the cops, whatever it may be, deputies, whoever is in that room can help provide some of that closure to the dispatcher that may or may not know what did happen. Maybe they know. And so I think it's important because you get the whole story from the very beginning of the call until the end when public safety is no longer involved. Welcome to Dr. D's Social Network. As you just heard, that was Joe McCarville. And Joe is a longtime 911 dispatch operator and supervisor. I think you're going to learn quite a bit in this episode. I know I did. I had lots of questions for Joe related to being in the profession. And really, I wanted to take a look behind the scenes, pull open the curtain, and really understand, take a deep dive as to what it's like, what are our biggest misconceptions, surprises, just information that we can learn about our 911 operators and just working in that job. Ladies and gentlemen, join me in the conversation with Joe McCarville. Um, I forgot how I saw where you were. I think it was on Spot, I guess, or something to that effect, or another site, and I was like, 911. Uh, like operator, I was like, oh, I have to talk about this. I, I don't think I know a lot of it. Who knows a lot about this stuff unless you're like in it or you've called it or something, you know? Yeah, exactly. I uh, answered the phones for uh, six years and then I went into the management side of uh, 911 and have been doing that for a while now. All in all, just a little bit over 20 years total experience in the 911 world. So why did you get into it? I'm sure you get asked that. I'm like, what was the motivation, you know? I do get asked that all the time. And uh, the motivation was I was taking business classes in college and I found out that I really wasn't interested in the classes. So I asked myself, is this something that I really want to do when I graduate? And I switched to communications. It's uh, funny, my parents know, uh, other people know that I didn't have a lot of support going into communications because everybody asked me, well, what is it that you're going to do? And I wasn't sure either. And right as I was about to graduate, a job opening posted up in the city that I'm from, and they wanted 911 dispatchers to apply. And I applied and I got hired. And I, I have to be honest, I, I really like uh, working in 911 and adding value to other people and uh, being there at a time of need and everything else. So it was a career path that really has worked out for me pretty well. I've asked other people this, and I always think, I think this would be a really good idea of kind of answering this question. What was that first day like when you were <laughs> the first call, anything like that, you know? Yeah, I always talk about it in uh, kind of different areas because on the first day, you're more or less observing 
uh, in right. places at least, and you're listening to calls or listening to radio traffic of uh, medical, fire, or law enforcement. And when I sat down and I listened on the first day, and I remember saying at the end of my first day, wow, we were busy. And the training mm. dispatcher that was training me said, we weren't really that busy. <laughs> and so I remembered every call, you know, from that day. And it was really um, eye opening as to everything that they actually do behind the scenes to uh, get help to people. So that first day was there. And then one of the first calls I ever answered by myself, um, and a different training person actually just pushed 911. It was during a storm blowing through. We had some high winds, possible tornado. I don't remember exactly. Mm-hmm. And she handed me the phone and said, take their information because we could, we're doing everything we could just to keep up. So, uh, a tornado type call was my first call while I was still in training in that first day. I'll never forget. Crazy. Now, did you have to work on kind of the overcoming the emotion that people have when they call? Because it seems like people can be very frantic, maybe a lot of the times with it, you know? Absolutely. It's our, it's our job to remain calm as well and to try and just uh, keep asking the same question with an action. It's one of the techniques they teach. It's called repetitive persistence, where you say the same thing over and over with an action. So, you know, I need your address so I can send you help. They're still maybe frantic or screaming or whatever it might be. And I just keep saying, I need your address so I can send you help. And, um, and then they eventually hear it. And a lot of times they will give you uh, that address, but the perception that uh, callers are more frantic uh, the majority of the time, I would say is probably wrong. Uh, The majority, if you look at a whole bunch of calls, a lot of times people may be a little bit excited or a little bit stressed and calling you about something but a lot of times they also will answer our questions. There are difficult callers and stressed out callers and excitable callers, but there's also a large chunk of callers that um, do a great job as well. That's interesting. I think sometimes maybe it's sensationalized when you watch documentaries about crime and stuff. I'm guilty. I'm one of those people. I love those crime documentaries. And there's, they always play 911 calls on those things. Do you... What do you think about those when you see stuff like that? <laughs> yeah, it just depends on how close they are to reality. I mean, one of the mm. number one questions that we always start with is what's the address or location of the emergency? And a lot of times the crime shows or other shows will start with 911, what is the emergency? And some agencies uh. still start with what, but uh, not as many that start with address and location. So whenever I watch one of those and I hear the very first question, 911, what's the emergency? It kind of tells me they're doing it for the effect in the show to keep the show moving along. And uh, that's always an interesting dynamic to watch that unfold. The most part is just the very first question that they ask. And then um, sometimes uh, what the 911 dispatcher can and can't do um, is um, – also, maybe a little bit sensationalized, like in I know there was a movie one time called The Call. It wasn't a, it was a good movie and stuff to yep. watch, but some of that was sensationalized and what role the nine one one dispatcher would actually play. Man, I remember that movie totally. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there's so many movies or documentaries where there's like there's always like you know a nine one one call and it's like the person screaming. It's like oh my gosh, you're hurt and stuff. And that's what like the public you know, was is exposed to. And that's why I wanted to talk to you too, is I was like, what's going on behind the scenes here, actually? 
<laughs> you know. Yeah, absolutely. We do have those callers that um where all they do is scream or Yeah. And 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 when I talk about this, you know, I understand they're going through a lot of stress or something traumatic uh just happened, but a lot of times the 911 dispatcher will hear just send them now or just get them here or uh, some creative words in there with some swear words along the way and just, you know, beep, beep, get them here. And what's that, what's that actually is doing is kind of slowing the response because we need to know at least what happened so we can send you the proper help. There's a big difference between, you know, somebody who their house was just broken into, but um, nobody was hurt, nobody was injured, and the people that broke in have since left compared to somebody breaking into a house and assaulting and hurting somebody that may need also medical attention. So we want to make sure we understand what's going on so that we send the proper resources to the people that are calling 911. And when I teach the public about this, I always say, you're going to get help there a lot quicker if you can just take a kind of take a deep breath and answer the questions of the 911 dispatcher as quickly as you can, because they're asking the questions to determine what to send you and how to send it to you and also how many to send to you. Mm. And by just uh, screaming at us, just get them here. That really actually ends up delaying an, an appropriate response. It may not delay the initial response altogether, but it probably does play a part in delaying the, um, wholehearted response just a little bit. So I always say, I know it's an emergency. I know it may be stressful, but just try to really answer their questions to the best of your ability so that you get the help that you need. So on a, uh, a typical day, I mean, maybe I don't know what's typical, if that is even true, how many phone calls can you get? <laughs> yeah, that really, that's a great question. And the reason I laugh is because there's a uh, 911 centers that have one dispatcher that do the whole shift. No. Yeah. <laughs> and they're really small communities. And then you have 911 dispatch centers in, in large cities, you know, I mean, any large city in the United States, uh, New York, Los Angeles, um, Washington, D.C., um, and you think of those large cities, so they're probably going to have a much higher call volume than somebody that's sitting inside. So I would just talk about my own experience and say that, you know, in an eight hour shift, if they're answering phone calls and that's their primary job, I'd say between around 100 and 110 total phone calls. I mean, is that a lot? Does that seem like a lot? It seems like a lot to me. I don't yeah. know, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I would say we're a, a medium to medium large for our state. Um, it, we're probably large in our state, but we're probably medium overall in, as far as the United States goes. Uh, so large in the state of Iowa, but medium size in the whole United States. But um, you can only process so many calls in an eight. And we also work eight hour shifts. So it depends on if they're working an eight hour shift. Uh, 10 hour shift, 12 hour shift. If they're doing more than just answering phone calls, are they a dispatcher and a call taker or are they just answering phone calls? And so some people separate those duties and some people um, do not. So it all depends on how large your agency is, what size of city or county you're working in or state agency, I guess. And so the question of what's normal, I think a wide range, anything from five or less to, I'd guess, 150, you know, so it's a really tough question to answer. It just probably depends yeah. on uh, where you work. Is there like been a day where there's been way more than, let's say, the normal number? And you're like, this is insane. <laughs> 
<laughs> I really like that question <laughs> uh, because, um, yes, there is. And uh, I can give a few examples. Um, July 4th is typically a, a busy day. Of course. Yeah. You know, you, I never thought of that. It's true. Yeah. And then if you work in a city that has, say you work in a city where your team just won a sporting event and there's a parade to honor them for uh, winning the title or whatever it might be. Um, and then there's uh, agencies that have spring break that come to them. So there's a lot of things that play a part, whether it's a national event, a weather event, or what your local community has to also increase 911 calls as well. But the, I would say the a number one day that sticks out to me that probably is an increase for everybody across the nation would probably be that July 4th. Crazy. Is it just like, well, let me, I mean, I have so much in my mind right now. I'm, my head's <laughs> exploding of things I got to ask you, but everything, you know, when, like when a team wins a championship, I always think it's weird to like, like there's elements of that where people are like burning cars and are doing all this crazy stuff. They're like vandalizing, like, but they won. <laughs> I'm, like, and I'm like, wait a minute, you're causing more work for the people in the community, you know? Yeah, that's always interesting. It can be busy right after they win with, with, with like, like what you described and then the parade, you know, there's traffic control, yeah. there's making sure you got a safe scene and everything else. But I mean, there's also things such as running events and uh, where there's large marathons that people yeah. do around the nation and then tragic events as well. So it can really be anything that makes any day become a really busy day. And that's one thing I really like about working in 911 is a lot of times you just don't know what the day is going to bring. There's certain tasks you got to do and maybe, you know, that gets reshuffled depending on what happens. But I, I really like the, um, the challenge that it is to protect everybody, get them the resources they need, but also each call is a little bit uh, different in nature. And I like that about the profession. Now, are there different, shifts that are preferable like where the volume is higher or lower and people are like man i don't want the night shift like it's crazy <laughs> you know yeah um uh, at least for us um it's uh busier probably between like i'd say 4 p.m and 9 p.m there's spikes also between 8 a.m and 10 a.m um, the, a lot of the spikes from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. also occur earlier in the week, uh, like Monday or Tuesday. Sometimes if you look at national trends where people are off enjoying themselves on the weekend or doing whatever it is, and then they get back to reality and, and, and everything else. And they find out, well, geez, I wasn't home and I didn't realize that, you know, maybe my car got hit or got mm -hmm. uh, some damage to it or whatever it might be, they find out something where they need a law enforcement response. And so Mondays and Tuesdays um, can be busy days in the, in the morning kicking off where people are getting back into a, a routine. And then the uh, weekends can sometimes be busy. And then night shift, a lot of times you're talking to uh, intense calls. And what I mean by that is either what um, it like, burglaries or you know that are in progress or um the calls are different from shift to shift during the day shift a lot of times you have a lot of administrative non-emergency uh calls sometimes and then the after you can just see it start to progress into a different type of calls mm. and then the afternoon shift probably takes a mix of calls and the and something can really emergency wise happen on the day shift as well. You just don't know what you're, you got a lot more vehicles out driving around. You could have a bad accident. Uh, the banks are open. So sometimes you could have a, like a bank robbery and you never know what you're going to get and when you're going to get it. But if you looked at 
uh, trends or anything like that. I would say that uh, sometimes on the day shift, uh, you get some more administrative calls. Uh, and then in the afternoon shift, you get a mix of administrative and 911. And then midnights, it starts off with uh, some 911 calls. But then eventually, not all places, but <laughs> most places, on the midnight shift, it also gets fairly uh, slower or quiet at oh. some t- at some time. So sometimes okay. those nights can drag on a little bit. I know I worked midnights for uh, five of my six years uh, when I was taking calls. And uh, some of those nights, especially uh, we have winter uh, in Iowa, and sometimes in the winter when it gets real cold, everybody's in trying to stay warm. And those, some of those nights can get a little bit slow. Yeah. You know, I never thought about the winter aspect that maybe like uh, emergencies would go down when just people aren't active. They're especially in really cold place. I imagine it's pretty cold where you're at. <laughs> and, uh, and so I'm, you know, people stay inside, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's just, there's just a lot of stuff going on here. You know, do you have a, like colleagues in other cities, let's say the like major cities and they're like, it's just bananas out here all the time, you know? Yeah, the the fortunate thing is for me is I also uh, train nine one one classes all over the nation and mm-hmm. and everything else, and I've met some people in uh, fairly large cities, and it's it's uh, interesting to talk to them about what their roles and responsibilities are, and and them talking with us because there's definitely some differences, but it's also a way to learn and to look at what maybe we could do different as we continue to grow and uh, everything else. So I like to stay in touch with those people because they're going to give me a perspective of what it's like to work at a larger agency as well. Do you ever, I know you do podcasts and stuff, different things. Do you ever tell any actual stories related to it? Like, or you're not allowed to type of thing? Yeah. I mean, we can tell, I don't tell any ones that are current now, but when I was yeah. dispatching, it was from 1998 to 2004. And I, and I do share, ago. yeah, it was a while ago. And so I share the tragic story a lot of times on these podcasts because, well, I, I don't like to necessarily talk about tragedy. Uh, it is a nature of the job. And it also shows, this story shows what 911 is going through as far as technology improvements uh, what we're going through with peer support now and uh, mental health for 911 dispatchers. Mm-hmm. And the story came from a child caller and he couldn't give me an address and there was a cell phone. But at that time, all we got on cell phone calls was the callback phone number and that was it. And we didn't get a location. We did not get GPS coordinates and he couldn't give me the information of where he was, but he gave me enough information to tell me that his cousin uh, had been in an accident where they were as she was rollerblading. And it was described to me that she was bleeding and had some glass like in her neck. And it, like I say, it is tragic because um, she didn't make it. But uh, the interesting thing about that call is it's one of my first ones uh, in 911 that I took on my own. I had to go to a critical incident debriefing after it. And one of the things about critical incident debriefing is, yes, they are uh, private, but one of the things that was said from a person in there was the dispatcher that keyed up, that's me, so that's why I think I can say this, is that they described it over the radio that you're going to someone that has glass in their neck. And like I said, I didn't know where they were. Yeah. So the, the caller gave me enough information that they could see a brown building and could see they were in a parking lot and they could also see a baseball field. And so I guessed that they were at one of our two high schools, either on the west side or the east side. 
We have uh, five large high schools in our city. And I guessed, and I guessed right on the one on the east side one. And so, like I said, the um, girl did not make it. And that call stuck with me forever because I wondered, did I do enough? Could I have done more? And then I went to the critical incident debriefing, which was nice because they included the 911 dispatchers in that debriefing. So I got some closure that I was nervous about putting it out over the radio that way, but that's exactly what I was told. So I learned early on, you know, tell them exactly what they're getting into so that they know. And then lastly, to see the technology changes in 911 from only getting a phone number to now you get GPS coordinates on most cell phone calls Mm. or some of them. There's other products out there that 911's coming up with where you even get, I describe it as Uber-like accuracy with the uh, GPS coordinates of callers that are improving enhanced response to make sure we're getting to the right location with the right resources. And you know, then there's other classes that talk about training and everything else. And there's uh, one foundation that goes around and talks about uh, his wife that made a 911 call in 911. Now this didn't happen in my community. It happened in uh, uh, Florida. And he goes around and talks to 911 dispatchers about making sure you're doing everything possible because um, his wife was uh, kidnapped and ended up being killed right outside of, um, taken right out of her house and uh, killed. And it's hearing that story has given me um, a lot of motivation to make sure I'm paying it forward, adding value to 911 dispatchers, telling them that their job is important and not to get complacent because every call you take could really have a um, positive or a negative outcome. And we need to make sure we're doing everything possible in our capacity to make sure that we try to aim for that positive, positive outcome if we can. How do you... This is a couple of questions. I mean, uh, I think maybe in both your roles is, you know, in answering phones and now in management, how do you prepare for the day? You know, kind of get yourself emotionally ready for an environment that can be very positive or negative, you know? Yeah, I would say for me and and my staff even recognizes it. They work with me long enough. One of the things that I have to do is get up and make it to exercise. I uh, Cardio has always been a struggle for me. I'm a tall uh, guy and um, everything else and cardio is just not my friend, but I know that if I go exercise in some capacity, I don't even have to push myself to extremes, right. but if I go exercise in some capacity and I go into work, uh, having done that before my shift, that really helps me. And then one of the other things I do is I read, uh, leadership books of all kinds, uh, to make sure that I'm staying sharp on my leadership skills. I started doing that in about 2016, uh, because I didn't feel I was as an effective of leader as what I should be for my staff. And so I made an investment in myself to get better at leadership. And I went and got John Maxwell, uh, certified mm-hmm. and I use some of that material. And then I also make sure that I'm if I get out of sync, then I make sure that I have a week where I can make it to the gym and also dedicated time set aside to get back on track by reading a book and also reaching out to to people like yourself and just uh, telling my story and uh, right. talking to you guys and making sure I'm staying fresh for my staff because uh, uh, they deserve it because they do an important job. Man, do you ever have people who... Uh... 
man, I keep, I'm getting so crazy about this because I'm like, I have 10 questions that explode in my mind. I'm like, I gotta pick which one I gotta ask this <laughs> Joe, you know, but is there, uh, other people who, you know, really get into the business, um, the profession and then decide, man, this is too intense for me. Yeah, absolutely. The, um, that's one of the reasons I, uh, I did want to uh, start training 911 dispatchers across the nation because you're when you look at 911 in general, you see that the retention rates are low, turnover is high, um, morale sometimes within the 911 centers, not at all places, uh, but at some can be uh, described as low. And so one of the challenging things is in a lot of places, there's not a career path where there's a lot of advancement. Say you have a, a manager or a director, whatever it might be, and a couple supervisors, and then 20 or 30, 40 people answering phone calls, there's not a lot of place to go for advancement. So one of the things that I've really focused on is saying, how can I make a difference to give everybody in 911 something that can help them when the opportunity arises to advance their career? within their own walls and start making a difference. But people do start at 911 positions and, and, and they do leave when the job is just, they don't think it's uh, just about helping people. They get in the walls and they find out that it's, you know, you got to keep up your training. You've got to keep up on certain things. There's a process of entering a warrant. There's process of confirming warrants. There's um, more to it than there's uncooperative callers. I, sometimes there's this perception that you're going to answer a phone call and you're going to be able to send help. And other times it could also be where you answer a phone call and all of law enforcement is busy. And so a citizen that called in may have a, a lower priority call for service that sits there for a while that calls back. And they're now wondering how come you haven't done anything to help them? Why law enforcement isn't there? And so once uh, people get in and see the totality of the job and what it all entails, sometimes, yeah, it's not, it's not for everybody. It's interesting. It sounds like you almost have to triage these calls on some level, the priority level, like this is high priority, mid-level, low level. Is, is that what I'm hearing kind of thing? It, absolutely. And uh, we prioritize, and that's why I said, you know, uh, earlier that the when you can answer the questions to the best of your ability, even during those stressful moments, it really helps the 911 dispatcher out immensely. Wow. Yeah, I think about it that sometimes there are people maybe calling in for something that's really not a huge emergency, and they may be waiting based off of what you're telling me, it sounds like. Yeah, and so in some places, if um, law enforcement's busy or say there was a major accident that came in and it's tying up a lot of law enforcement resources to divert traffic or whatever it might be, and somebody called in about a criminal mischief or whatever it might be, some kind of vandalism, and the suspect isn't there and it happened you know, a day or two ago, uh, that's going to probably receive a low priority uh, score because there's no suspects, there's no danger, and the officers are trying to make sure they're getting the traffic flow going and everything else. So they they may wait if the law enforcement agency is extremely busy, and sometimes that don't always settle well with the public. And so there's things you can do when they call, tell them, you know, we're busy, there may be a delay in getting out there. Uh, call them back if you're able to after about 15, 20 minutes and give the caller an update and try to really 
increase that uh, customer service so that the caller also knows what to expect. And sometimes that goes a long ways as well. Now, what would be this is kind of a two part question, Joe, here? Um, man, I'm getting pumped up about this. Really? <laughs> I knew this was going to be good. I was like, man, I'm getting juiced up. <laughs> so what, what, would, what is the most surprising thing you think for the public that they would know about 911? Maybe like, man, I didn't know that. And what's been the most surprising thing for you being in it for this long? Okay, I'd say for the public. Uh, the first thing is, is that we can't send you help unless you kind of, I mean, we can, we can kind of guess, but you don't want us to guess to send help. You want to help us with that address. Mm. And so we, we are having uh, technology improvements. We're getting there. Uh, but it is best for the caller to confirm that address 100% of the time if you're able. Now, I understand sometimes you might not be able to talk. You might be held against your will. You may be hiding. Mm. If somebody is breaking into the business or breaking into a residence. Um, so I understand sometimes you can't. Uh, but understanding that the location to send you help is imperative. And then for me personally, what I didn't realize going into it is the the mental uh stress that it takes its toll on 911 dispatchers and how you have to prepare yourself to make sure that you're staying fresh and then what 911 dispatchers might not know as well is like how to how do you communicate to you know like I'm in Iowa you're you're in Washington how is it when we come across somebody that has an emergency that's calling us to get a hold of somebody in Washington, how do we do that? And how is it that we work together amongst all agencies and learning how you communicate through the tools that 911 centers have and send messages to other agencies and confirm things such as stolen vehicles or whatever it might be uh, was just a lot to learn and take in and to understand that you, as a 911 dispatcher, you truly make a tremendous difference behind the scenes. And until you've worked in that environment, a lot of times uh, you don't know everything that they're doing. And I would say that was the biggest surprise to me is everything that they're actually doing. Wow. That's actually, that's amazing. I wonder, is there anything when somebody gets off their shift, is there a protocol to kind of debrief them or something? I imagine after going through, maybe you get a string of really difficult calls. How does somebody kind of come down from that and go home? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question because it's the probably one of the biggest topics in 911 right now. And 911 is looking at implementing peer support teams or they have implemented them at their own agencies and making 911 dispatchers a part of it. Uh they're starting to look at requiring dispatchers to attend critical incident debriefing. A lot of states are starting to look at, and there's a nationwide push to move to dispatchers to be classified as first responders. Mm. And I'm proud in the state of Iowa, we just did that. Uh, the governor signed the bill where they recognize dispatchers as first responders. And there's other states that have done that as well. And those improvements are helping because these calls do add up. But one of the things about 911 that a lot of people don't know is we've been around since 1968, so only 52, 52 years. Well, that's not long. <laughs> not long at all. And so we're starting to finally get some data on what does it um, do to a person that works in 911 for 30, 35 years. 
And we're now starting to see some of this and uh, putting the 911 dispatcher's health, physical health and mental health at the forefront uh, is absolutely imperative and, and very much needed right now. So like you described it, do you check on them? I encourage, you know, all coworkers to check on each other. Just ask them, hey, you took that uh, really intense call. Are you, are you doing okay? Also, let your supervisors, your managers know so that they can check on them. And if you have a peer support team or you have a critical incident debriefing team or you have um, liaisons throughout the departments, uh, re- work with them and reach out to them and see what resources are available there uh, before something happens rather than waiting until something happens. Uh, I would encourage you to to do it now. Yeah, I would imagine that in your line of work that there's the potential for significant PTSD from this, even though you're not physically maybe out there, there's still a big mental aspect that could cause some damage, I would imagine. Yeah. One of the best stories I have about this, and I'm friends with him today, and he spoke about it uh, publicly. So I have the permission to talk about it. Mm -hmm. I was teaching a class and my teaching style is very energetic. I like to bring energy in. I like to be upbeat and I like to relate to my audience and getting getting them laughing at the beginning. And then I like to do my teaching points. And then I like to end about the importance of their job. And so I, I started the class out. I was energy. I was kind of making them laugh. And it's fast paced at the beginning. And I took the first break. And this uh, student comes up to me and asked me, is this how you teach all your classes? And I said, yes. And I wasn't sure where it was going. And he says to me, he goes, uh, well, I want you to know why I'm here. And I said, is my pace or my energy, is it too much? And he goes, no, actually, I really appreciate it. I'm here because of a last ditch effort to see if I can continue to do 911. And your class about communication and everything else, I was looking so forward to it. And I was nervous about coming because I'm hoping that it can kind of make sense for me. And then he went on to talk to me about the PTSD he's had and how he, you know, has had it severely in the past and been even suicidal. And he was telling me this on break and I formed a bond with him. And I'm proud to say that he's still in 911. I'm proud to say that I still check on him periodically. Uh, He stays in touch on my uh, company pages and I feel like no matter what else I do uh, in teaching 911 classes, how often, how big, where I go, I've made a difference, a major difference in somebody. And that's what I talk about. Just always be willing to pay it forward and add value to somebody else because you don't know whose life uh, you possibly could change or make better. Most definitely. I mean, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, I wonder how or how tapped in you are with what's going on currently in our times and how 911 has been affected by the pandemic. Has there been a surge that you know of in calls of 911 um, and things related to that? It's been a mix. Uh, it's It started as a surge and then it kind of decreased because a lot of people did the stay at home things. And then it's uh, started to pick back up as the as things have started to open back up. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of been a little bit of a roller coaster. Uh, what it also has done is a lot of agencies have locked down either their 911 center, some haven't, some have. And what I mean by lockdown is dispatchers in, dispatchers out, because we share equipment. 
in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're using the same keyboard, same mice. Uh, it's increased our ability to our our requirements to clean, make sure we're uh, wiping things down in between shifts. And a lot of agencies are considering or or are using masks. And uh, within the 911 center, a lot of times you can't tell over the phone or the radio, uh, but sometimes maybe you can. And so the, the increased sense of making sure you're taking care of the equipment, taking care of yourself and doing those things. But the calls, like I said, it started off a little higher and then it, to me it dipped and now it's back up would probably be the trend that I've seen overall. And then other agencies have done anything they can, like putting up plexiglass barriers yeah. uh, between, the, between the councils or coming in with professional cleaners and getting the um, equipment clean. You know, it's a, it's a laundry list of things that um, people have done and continue to do because the pandemic, as we know, is, is still going on today. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. Do you ever, I was just thinking about this, like, doing this for so long, like you've done it. And like anybody who's done a profession, I've been in my profession almost 20 years, you're doing your whole thing, similar timeline. What are your thoughts about people in general after taking all these calls or supervising people taking calls? Is there any overall thoughts about humans in general after doing this? (laughs) I would say that um, the stories that stick out to me are always the positive ones. You know, and uh, we've uh, helped agencies in need, but the callers, if I focused on the callers, I would say that, you know, the the ones that are a little bit impatient, like I described earlier, send help now, send help now. Yeah. I wish that they would understand how come we have to ask the questions that we do. And And I would say that the number one thing in the 20 years that I've seen change is the communication techniques and styles uh, that departments must offer. And what I mean by that is a constant communication. A lot of agencies have Facebook or Twitter pages. Mm-hmm. And I think that has been the biggest change. When I started, we we didn't have a Facebook or a Twitter. You know, you, you waited for the press release to come out and then it went on the news. And that was that. And And now it's a lot of times it's out to everywhere uh, before we're even done at the scene, <laughs> you know? So it's, um, I would say the quick communication that everything has became faster and everything's became more uh, is definitely been the biggest change in my 20 year career is how quickly information is processed. Is it, is it difficult sometimes doing the job and then, having a personal life, do you feel like it can some ways affect who you are as a person and general activities that you're doing? hundred percent. And, um, I know for me, I went through, uh, I don't blame the job by any means, but I got divorced. Um, a lot of people work every weekend, miss family functions, uh, get mandatory to work during like a, a kid's birthday or something like that. And so it can consume you. Uh, but you try not to let it, uh, you m- try to make sure that you're staying involved, whether you have to maybe have your family Thanksgiving and maybe it works for everybody on a, a different day other than just mm-hmm. Thanksgiving, you know? And I know for me, I go on vacation starting Friday and, um, it's the, the last week in July is always a big one for me where I take one week and fully disconnect and reset and, um, 
go on vacation and just kind of hang out with family at a couple different lakes and we'll do our best to socially distance and we're outside all the time anyhow. So looking forward to that, but the job can consume you and it can consume you in a lot of different ways, whether it's the calls sticking with you, whether it's the fact that you get mandatory in, or maybe you plan on working an eight hour shift and now nobody can come in. So you're required to stay for, you know, another eight. Some people work 16 hours, some people work 12 hours, 10 hours, so the, the amount of hours people work uh, can be stressful as well. But yeah, the jo- you have to make sure that you're taking care of yourself so the job doesn't consume you because if you let it, there's the potential that it possibly could. That's what it seems like. I imagine uh, these places where there's windows or anything, nature, seeing outside, or is it kind of just in like, I'm imagining kind of a bunker type of place. <laughs> I have no clue, man. I'm just yeah. saying, you know. It's a wide mix, and uh, a lot of places they do try to take precautions for, um, like you said, tornadoes or weather or hurricanes, and then other places do have windows. And then there's other battles of maybe there's a place that's by a river that could possibly flood, or maybe there, you know, there's a tower at their location that runs their radio system, and lightning hits the tower, and now you are out of radio communications. Mm. So it could really be anything, but there's a wide mix of where these, or is it a standalone building for the 911 dispatchers or is it a blended building with fire and EMS and law enforcement response or is it law enforcement and dispatch? So it could be anywhere and in between. I've been in places that are completely underground and that looks great and everything else until the water comes or whatever it might be. And I've been places that are you know not underground and they have a bunch of windows and so it's a wide mix of what it is. And it's just the, I, to me, it's what is the best setup for you and the challenges that face where your building is at. Yeah. I didn't, you know what, see, this is like the public, like me, I have no clue. Like, because you're, we're so like influenced by like movies and things of that nature. And you're like, oh, they're in some dungeon room, man. You know, and it's like, <laughs> you don't know until you talk to somebody and you start you kind of this, you're in this matrix about what you think it is. And then somebody tells you, you're like, oh, I, I didn't know that. And it makes perfect sense what you just said. Yeah. Yep. You know, so it's like, there's just feels like there's this other world. All everybody has these other worlds they're living in, this 911 dispatch world. Like, I'm not privy to that generally. I mean, when would I know about that unless I called 911 right. type of thing? You know, uh, so it's amazing to hear behind the scenes of that. I wanted to go back a little bit to the technology. Um, So you said GPS is kind of the biggest change. Is that what I was hearing? It's one that I would definitely put up there. I mean, there's also like mobile computers that the cops use in the car, the firefighters use now. When I started, they didn't have those, you know, so the technology in general. But if I had to rate one of them, I would say the improvement of additional information coming across uh, to the 911 callers on cell phones, such as the callback number, uh, GPS coordinates of an approximate location or an exact location, and the technology that's changing and how it quickly it's evolving. It's uh, one of the yes. terms that you maybe hear is NG911 or next generation 911. Yeah, what is that? Yeah, it's more intelligence and um, information and technology to advance the um, experience of 911 callers and also provide more um, information so that people can make better decisions about what they're responding to. And you can send a better response um, 
to what the caller has reported and where they're at. And it's just additional information uh, technology-wise for Next Generation 911. Is there ever, uh, just pop into my mind, is there ever an idea or maybe a thought that this there may be some level of automation into this in the future, like heavy automation? Yeah, I mean, you hear that once in a while. Uh, but a lot of times the things that come with that is, and I, I don't like keep, to keep going to it, but I'll try and give a, an example, is the location. If, if there's automation, it, they're going to have to give an exact location of where they are at. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times they don't, they aren't able to do that. So I've also worked in a small community where there is not, maybe there's one house on the farm or whatever for miles. And uh, somebody will get in a car accident and one person will be from there and they'll call in to 911. They, they won't know exactly what road they're on, but they're by the, the red farm or the blue farmhouse on such and such, or they're by, you know, somebody's house. They just go by name and automation. I'm not so sure would be able to do that. So there still needs to, I think, be a human touch to make sure that the citizens are getting the help that they need when they need it. And the example I always give is when I first started at the other community I worked in, they talked about a location uh, it's called Big Tree Corner. And there used to be years ago a big tree at that intersection. <laughs> so they called it Big Tree Corner. And when I started there, there, there was no longer a tree even. It had been cut down years ago, but it was still called Big Tree Corner, even though there was no tree there. Yeah, I think that kind of nuanced aspect would be difficult for like uh, AI and things of that nature to right. understand. There's so there's a complexity to our human behavior and these little things that we pick up on that I think be very difficult for um, automation to really get deep into the weeds with, at least currently. I mean, that would be amazing if that was at that level, but I would think we're pretty far off of things like that. You know? Yeah. I do think we'll start to see some AI type stuff creep into 911 in the near future. And I want to learn more about it as well. And I'm not so sure how far it'll get, uh, especially in my career in 911. But I, I, yeah. I do think a lot of stuff is moving that way. And I think 911 eventually will too. But I think for now, uh, we're just focused on improving technology and making sure we're, we have the best resources available to send people help when they need it. Well, you know, what's interesting is that uh, I always tell people, I had a guy on who who is in AI. That's like his job. It's crazy. It was crazy. The interview was awesome. And um, like, I think a lot of people in that profession, I see it's fairly narrow AI. But if you even think about back in the day, like you would call to like, let's say for like a credit card or something, like the AI is so bad. It's so bad. And you're like, hello please press this number, you know, stuff like that. Right. But voice recognition is getting so much better and it's starting to feel a little more natural in those things. And I wonder how, can you imagine a day where somebody called 911 and it wasn't a human, but it sounded exactly like one, you know? Right. That'd be mind blowing. I'm not saying it will happen. It just, things are moving real quick, you know? (laughs) More and more and more before. I mean, that's kind of the, uh, Interesting thing. We do more things uh, more often. We do more things before we used to. So more and more and more before. That's very true. Well, Joe, man, I tell you what, thank you so much for being on and providing a lot of uh, deep, rich insight into um, 
911 dispatch and supervision. And uh, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's been great getting to uh, meet you and participate in your podcast. I would encourage everybody to listen to it. Uh, the email exchanges we had were uh, incredible, and it's my honor to be on today. And I appreciate everything you're doing for me as well. Thank you so much. And listen, enjoy your vacation. <laughs> I, I, I will for sure. I just got to get to Friday first. You're going to make it. Get to Friday, Joe's vacation time. <laughs> there you go, man. Thanks a lot. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. You got it. Thanks. So let me ask you something. How do you get your news? Because I know you want to stay informed with what's going on here in the world. There's so much going on on a regular basis. And it's something that's been a problem for me personally. And I've been searching and searching and searching. And finally, I found a news source that I think all of my listeners are going to love. It's called The Donut or the dose of news useful today. The founder and CEO, Peter Nowak, is a good friend of mine, and when he turned me on to it, I was just blown away. Finally, a daily news source that delivers succinct and factual news about all the world's occurrences, and it's an easy access to finding things that you just want to get information about. And it also serves up a lot of positive news stories that you won't hear anywhere else. It's your daily reminder that there is good in the world, even if it doesn't feel like it sometimes. So get the donut, stay informed. It's 100% free. You can unsubscribe anytime. Visit thedonut.co or text donut to 66866 to sign up today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the Rate and Review section. Thanks, everyone.